Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Richard Munson, the author of the book Tech to Table, 25 Innovators Reimagining Food, where he argues that the agriculture industry, long the least digitized sector, is poised for disruption and profiles 25 entrepreneurs developing solutions to industrialized food's biggest problems. Here's my conversation with Richard Munson. Richard Munson, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I want to start off with what inspired you to write this book. Um, You've obviously written many books before this. Uh, Why suddenly the focus on food and ag? been focused on entrepreneurs and innovation for a long time. My last book was on Nikola Tesla. Talk about a wild uh, inventor and innovator. But um, in my day job, I was working for the Environmental Defense Fund or a a company called Recycled Energy Development. So I was particularly focused on innovation in the clean energy space. And it struck me that, you know, as important, if not significantly more important, is what's happened with food and farms. And as I began to explore, it just became to be quite honest, more and more interesting because there were these array of new innovators um, that seem to be um, changing the way we farm and what we think about food. Yo, your book talks about uh, why we need to reimagine food. So why do you think that we need to reimagine food? What did you learn as you were researching this subject matter? We well, can look at it from a variety of different perspectives. I mean, it Agriculture is a, a challenge. Um, you look at what happens with environmental, you know, contamination as a result of you know just climate change. You know, um, additions that come from agriculture, you know, the loss of soil from erosion, the you know depletion of you know microorganisms in, in the nutrition of the of the soil have gone down, and then of course you have. Um, you know, malnutrition and, um, uh, you know, obesity and, and hunger that still exists. If, imagine that in the 21st century. So I think one of the things that not only you look at agriculture as it being the world's largest economic sector, um, it also is at the core of so many of our key, you know, problems that we face today from environment, climate change, social equity, health, you name it. So, um, and it's one which I think, as you noted, um, has not been as addressed as you would think it should be, noting how big it is and what the potential for improvements are within the sector. Yeah, and one of the things I noticed and, and I found really fascinating, I mean, you have a lot of interesting statistics up front in your book. And one one thing that stood out for me, and I, I, I've been focused on this space for a decade and 
I did not know this, which is that the healthcare industry spends about 21% of its budget on research and development. Computing, they devote 25% mm. of their budget on this. Uh, the automotive industry devotes about 16%, while global food companies allocate less than 1% to R&D. So is, you know, is, this, is the lack of R&D the real opportunity here for startups uh, who are entering into the space of food where because big food companies have traditionally not looked at yeah, at least developing new products and technologies in-house, um, that the big opportunity here is for startups to quickly enter the fray and uh, most likely get acquired by these companies? Or do you think that startups are entering it in your conversations with several entrepreneurs with the intention of actually disrupting big food? Well, I think it varies by innovator. There are some which are just independent-minded little cusses that think that they can, um, you know, like Don Quixote, take on you know, big ag and defeat it because they're more confident that they're better at technology and marketing. I think they look at that 1% R&D plus, you know, you look at reports from McKinsey and other places that would rank agriculture as the least digitalized uh, or, if you will, the least modernized of all industries. That's pathetic, um, noting the importance of agriculture to our economy. But it also opens up for the aggressive entrepreneur the option of thinking that they have an opportunity to battle the oligopolies, big ag, um, and win. Whether they'll, you know, there's a mix. You'll find some innovators that think that they're going to start up a company and hopefully they'll cross their fingers and pray that they get bought up by big ag. There's others who are convinced that they're going to beat them. <laughs> the, the oligopolies are just slow moving and they as the fast moving um, you know, entrepreneurs uh, can succeed in the market. It, it's what makes food uh, and ag and just food systems issues so interesting because it isn't like um, uh, like uh, disrupting, say, the, the, the software industry um, or computing, right? It is this complex interconnected system that over centuries has been largely dominated by a few big companies that pretty much control the production distribution and kind of endpoints of how food is even consumed. And so while, you know, some would say technology is not the solution in the first place, because what we really need to do is perhaps uh, find a way to uh, break this existing model that keeps... um, the food supply largely controlled by a few um, companies uh, that if they wanted to could find ways to feed the world with the available calories Mm -hmm. uh, that we have Mm -hmm. today but because they have no incentive to do so food you know 40 percent of food continues to get wasted so i guess my question and all of that is really what emerged for you as as the potential of technology as the solution and why can tech be the solution? And I know not all tech is created equal and it's a pretty broad word, but in your view, where do you think technology fits in, in this effort to transform the food system? I think the surprising new thing that's emerging in our economy is just this confluence of new technologies. They're not necessarily ag-related, but I mean, the over the last five or 10 years, the advances in sensors and the amount of data that can be collected through sensors, the 
uh, processing power of computers is just astronomical compared to what it was five, 10 years at the most. Robotic controls are now far more sophisticated than ever before. So what I found interesting is when I went looking for innovators um, in the ag space, they tended to be outsiders. They tended to be people who had not been in agriculture before. And they were bringing this confluence of technologies um, to ag for the first time and, and bringing it to the least digitalized you know, sector of our economy. Um, and Eric Schmidt, who used to be the CEO of Google, would refer to this as an opportunity for startup companies to be more powerful than the entrenched ones and to advance you know, um, very powerful new businesses and industries as a result of something that's not happening in agriculture, but is coming to agriculture because of innovators and entrepreneurs and creative investors. And your book talks about this as well, but 40% of uh, food globally is wasted and uh, 30% of it is actually fed to livestock. Um, while still millions of people across the world lack access to nutritious food, many of them go to bed hungry every night. And so if you look at those two big stats, 40% food is wasted, 30% is actually going to feed animals that then get converted into food. Um, do you think those are the two biggest areas that where we can have the most amount of impact by perhaps uh, you know, redefining protein or sources of protein, and then secondly, tackling the food waste problem? And, and then I'd also love to hear some examples of companies you talk to in the space that are tackling those two big challenges. Because the way I see them, if you can tackle those two challenges and at least reduce that percentage from 40 to 20 and from 30 to 10, uh, that would be a significant impact on the food system and the planet. Oh, a massive impact on the planet. I mean, there's depends upon who you talk to as far as what agriculture's share is of the climate problem, but it is big. Um, you know, some of them in the industry say it's quite minuscule. There was actually an ad in a recent New York Times, you know, full page ad from the beef industry suggesting that they're actually, you know, contributing to the solution of, um, you know, climate change. There are others, you know, particularly from the environmental community that are claiming agriculture, particularly livestock you know, agriculture is upwards of 51 percent of, you know, the um, global greenhouse gas emissions. So. You've got to be careful with, with these numbers, but I think you're right as far as pointing to two places that I would focus on first is one, it, can we do a better job of delivering proteins? I think you're right in noting that, um, you know, if we are to feed an additional 2 billion people, in other words, get up to about 10 billion, you know, most people sort of step back and think, oh my God, it's impossible. How can we possibly, you know, um, cut enough rainforests or other things to build more farms, to create more crops? But I mean, the truth is, you know, we currently produce enough calories to feed 10 billion people. It's just, as you know, um, so much of it is wasted, uh, lost, um, and other parts are, you know, fed to animals in a not particularly efficient process. Looking at the different companies that you uh, talk to in, or the different innovators that you talk to that are tackling these two big problems, which stood out to you as the ones who have the most, and you know, this is maybe your personal opinion here as well, which is the most chance of success given the magnitude of the problem, the opportunity in the space, and even perhaps how far they've gotten in terms of their own um, development and growth as a company. Well, let's just take um, alternative ways of providing protein. I mean, the two big factors are either you do it through plants, 
um, or you do it through um, growing stem cells. Um, obviously, plants has through people like you know um, Patrick Brown and Impossible Foods, who's one of the ones that I profiled, have been very successful in getting their product in front of a lot of consumers. Um, and the other on the cell front side, one Uma Valete with uh, what's now called Upside Foods, used to be Memphis Meats, um, where you know, there's a lot of optimism that's being espoused about what they can do and various reports would suggest that the, the industry can grow greatly. We'll have to see. Um, you know, it, it sounds good, but I mean, at the bottom line is, will customers find it to be tasty? and willing to, um, you know, eat it, let alone, you know, buy it. So those are two sort of on the opposite side. I guess on the plant-based side, I, I was struck by how quickly um, it has been um, not totally adopted, but um, embraced as far as willingness to try. I think the last stat that I saw within the last few years has almost gone from, you know, this total niche market to one that's like 70 some odd percent of Americans have at least tried plant-based, you know, um, meat equivalents. That's really stunning. Granted, you know, that it still is, um, you know, a, a niche market. It's like, um, I forget what the, the number is. Um, Probably like but, 1% you know, of total meat sales, I think. Something of that yeah. sort. And, but, you know, there are guesses that it will go up rather substantially. Um and, you know, you have to take those with a bit of a grain of salt, but um, the growth that we have seen in them and the advances that they've made on the science side of producing um, alternative meats that are, in fact, tasty, look good, and you're willing to try has been really quite remarkable. Yeah. And, and you also profiled a few innovators who are tackling the food waste problem. One of the ones that I, I really stood out for me was... Uh, a company, I believe it's called Ripe.io. Maybe that's uh, what yes. they now uh -huh. are called. I, I've always been fascinated by this idea of um, the little I understand of blockchain technology. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think I understand it, but but maybe you can do a better job at explaining it to our listeners than I probably will. But one of the things that I've been I've been the idea that I've been fascinated by is that if you could build more transparency in the food system. We could, you know, we could eliminate several of our problems by just being because a lot of what I've noticed in in being involved directly in in food distribution and and kind of understanding the intricacies of that system, at least in the U.S., it is it is full of uh, places where unnecessary wastage happens. There's unnecessary amount of energy that's used. Plus, there's complete lack of transparency when it comes to uh, sourcing of ingredients and farming techniques. And there's a lot of uh, wishy-washy greenwashing going on right now yes. uh, on the part of many brands. So blockchain has the potential, as far as I understand, to maybe bring a little bit more transparency where truly what you see uh, when you get something uh, to to eat on your ta on your plate, uh, when you're sitting down at a table, um, you will be able to truly trace back where that came from. Can you maybe tell us what Ripe IO does, and if there's is it is a technology truly that revolutionary? Um, I think it is, um, and in a variety of different um, economic sectors, and it is just finally making it to agriculture. I mean, blockchain is. 
you know, at its simplest, it's simply a ledger, a very sophisticated ledger that doesn't require a middleman or typically a bank to confirm whether transactions have been made. It's um, verifiable by basically anybody that's involved in it. So I think what you're referring to as far as not only its ability to, to reduce waste and figure out where there are problems in the food chain and be able to correct them far faster, but I think it changes food from being a commodity to being something that um, can be sourced noting its particular attributes. So, you know, people grow grains um, for a variety of different purposes. Some grains are of higher quality, better for beer. Others are better for bread. Um, you know, how do we, instead of throwing all of the grains into one big silo, um, how do we have a system that's able through transparency allow us to know um, which you know, of these crops are have the attributes that we as either you know, the makers of food or the consumers of food are looking to have. And I think that's that and the ability to reduce the waste and spotted earlier, I think are the revolutionary aspects of bringing blockchain to agriculture. Another part of your book, you actually profile five different categories of solutions. I think you, you've, you've talked to a number of innovators, but you've, in your book, you divide it into five parts. As I mentioned earlier, food waste and you know, redefining proteins uh, are the first two. But the, some of the other ones were equally, if not more interesting, because many of them have immediate impact. So you do have some technologies uh, that you profile in the book that cover... Uh, ways in which com you know food companies or farmers can cut carbon emissions as well as find new ways to nourish plants. Can you maybe illustrate a few like share some examples? Let me give one, particularly on the on the aspect of trying to cut down on poisons, herbicides, pesticides, what have you onto the field. Um, you know weeds are a real problem for farmers. Um, and, you know, the typical approach is that we just spray across an entire field and, um, you know, hope it gets the weeds and, you know, doesn't get the plant. There's a, one company um, called FarmWise that has figured out how with an orange Zamboni looking um, robot uh, can autonomously drive itself through the fields and uh, pluck out weeds. This is really a, a technology that's really quite stunning because they're using they take thousands and thousands of pictures of weeds and um, actual crops at different times of their maturation, at different times of the day, at different times of the year. So they create algorithms that allow them, similar, I suppose, to what Google does with our face recognition, but far more sophisticated in being able to quickly note, that's gonna be a weed. And I, with my little pin, uh, my plucker, I'm gonna go in there like a little hoe and I'm gonna rip it out by the root and I'm not going to have to spray in the process of doing it. Oh, and by the way, I can also do this 24 hours a day uh, because, you know, my Zamboni like, um, you know, robot doesn't really care what the weather is like or whether there's light outside. So that's the type of, you know, you're using this amazing advances in sensors and these amazing advances in being able to compute the information from these sensors in a way that brings to agriculture the ability to, in this case, reduce poisons and increase, you know, the yields of um, the fields that farmers are working in. How many of the technologies that you surveyed did you find were actually looking to solve problems that are 
partly being caused by uh, climate change and changing weather patterns. Because one of the realities of what's going to happen to farming and the food system in general is that, you know, firstly, not only are we draining our natural resources, we're running out of, 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 of good land and, and fresh water, but because of climate pressures, any any food company today has now also got to think about whether the land that they rely on, the predictable patterns for um, rainfall are, can can be relied on anymore. Because you've, you're going to have you know freezing rain in parts of the country that never had it before. You're going to have a sudden flood or a wildfire to contend with. To what extent were some of these uh, technologies more iterative, more related to blocking and tackling some of these immediate problems? It, you know, maybe they aren't trying to solve the food waste issue or redefine protein, but they're still f- fulfilling a very crucial function of perhaps finding ways for the existing food companies to continue to provide food at the uh, at the well, I guess it's objective, but at the current efficient levels at which they do so. Let me uh, suggest two. There's um, one, uh, Trace Genomics um, provides um, an ability to map soils, um, basically provide similar to, you know, 23andMe, which is that, you know, personal thing that you can provide to get a sense of your ancestry and your genetic makeup and all that sort of stuff. So they're, they are basically looking at, you know, a spoonful of soil and analyzing through sensors and computation again, um, what's in the soil and what is needed as that soil changes, faces drought, faces more rain to be able to move from what had been an art form in thinking about what seeds to plant in which fields to now suddenly becoming a science. Um, another example, I think, is the um, 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 Caribou Biosciences, which um, came out of the lab of Jennifer Doudna, who recently won the Nobel Prize for inventing gene editing through something called CRISPR. And suddenly by, I mean, we've been adjusting, you know, and uh, rearranging plants for millennium. I mean, that's what we do to mix, you know, mix plants in a fashion that they end up, the corn is sweeter and it's easier to eat, all that sort of stuff. Uh, what CRISPR does is just simply make it easier and faster and democratizes the ability you know, to do that. So they are consciously thinking about this is a drought um, burdened, you know, area of the world. How do we create seeds that will allow us to still enjoy you know, heirloom tomatoes, um, but they'll survive in what has become and will increasingly become, you know, drought ridden. So um, I look at those two as just, you know, trying to, if you will, um, fill in for um, the problems that climate change is bringing to agriculture and their efforts to, through gene editing or through, um, you know, soil mapping uh, to be able to resolve those any any carbon uh, cutting technologies that you found that, that stood out because uh, of, you know there's no denying one third of global greenhouse gas emissions uh, through conservative estimates one third of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by the food system as much as we need to focus on you know game changing breakthrough technologies that are going to be perform significantly better we 
could also pay attention to the existing system and find ways to minimize the carbon output. Did you see anything that's truly promising that could actually make an impact in the next decade or so? The one that intrigued me the most um, but comes across as the most silly um, is <laughs> I think I know what you're trying say. <laughs> to, to block the burps of cows. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, that just seems nutty, um, but there are a billion cows uh, and they have stomachs um, that release a lot of methane gas, um, which is 84 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as far as a greenhouse you know, gas problem. And so what various companies have done is they're beginning to find, if you will, food additives for cows um, that reduce the amount of gas that happens when they belch. (laughs) So it sounds rather funny, but when you look at where there is the most methane, there's more methane released from cattle than there are from all the leaking oil and gas wells across the entire world. Um, methane is by far more, um, you know, powerful and deadly, you know, from a climate perspective than, um, you know, carbon dioxide from, you know, you know, power plants. So it's a huge problem, even if it sounds sort of silly. Um, but here are people that are looking at, you know, um, varieties of red seaweed. They're looking at mixtures of garlic. They're, you know, basically, you know, um, in the same way that you might take an antacid, um, we're trying to figure out how they're trying to figure out how to feed cows in a way um, that allows them to continue, in fact, possibly increase the yield of their milk, um, but doing it in a fashion where they're not burping up methane. Yeah, I know. A lot of people react. Uh, it depends on where you sit on these issues. You can look at that as being completely silly and pointless when you can eat a plant-based burger or drink a plant-based milk. Why do you even need the cow? That's fine. But I totally get that point of view. But secondly, um, the, the, a counterpoint really is that animal agriculture isn't, even if even if the impossibles and the upsides um, are able to grow into successful companies, it's not going to happen overnight. And so we do need to create a bridge where we start, you know, addressing the significant damage that has been caused by the current system. And then if you want to take a truly optimistic view on this, you know, in a way that the fact that such efforts are underway shows you that finally the industrial meat producers and dairy producers acknowledged that they have a problem. They were, for years, they yes. t- totally denied that methane was an issue or that they were contributing, that, that industry had any hand in contributing to global greenhouse gas emissions. So in a way, we have come far, maybe, maybe not as fast as we should have, but we are finally at a point where at least the problem is being acknowledged, right? And so me, here's being, <laughs> me being supremely optimistic. And I, and I think breakthrough technologies will come uh, and many of them, the, the best ones will rise. And if they find the right product market fit and they're able to con- convince consumers that these these foods are not only good for the planet, good for them, but taste the same as whatever they're used to that they got from mm. um, from their grocery store in the past. And here's the part of food that is not often talked about. It's not just the systems issue, right? It also touches our lives in every little way and it's part of our culture. And you mentioned this in the book as well. One of the things I'm I'm curious about is um, in looking across the board at these, these interesting innovators who are tackling various aspects, various problems with our food system, uh, you know, do you think that 
all of this is leading us to a food system that's going to be more sustainable, uh, more equitable, uh, and maybe you believe some of it might happen and some of it won't. Or is it just going to end up creating uh, a more efficient food system where the existing big food companies just continue to prosper? Because I think you even say this in the book, the food system's in a way working great for those who stand to benefit from it. <laughs> it's, mm. it, it they continue to reap <laughs> billions of dollars, right? So in, in that sense, it's working exactly as planned, except it's causing all these unintended consequences. So yes. looking at these new technologies, do you how hopeful are you for it, it, uh, its ability to bring about more equity and sustainability in the in the world? Well, two parts. Let me uh, one addition or observation relative to your initial comment about um, you know that one single technology is not going to solve all of our problems. I think what intrigued me in doing this is that the 25 you know innovators that I profiled and could have been a whole lot more or it could have been a whole lot of different people because I think some of the ones that I profiled probably are not going to succeed. That's what happens with startups, you know, but the diversity of their efforts um, to utilize this new confluence of technologies was really stunning, you know, to me. Uh, and the growth of investment—I mean, the investment into um, ag startups is going like almost eighty percent, you know, annually to thirty billion dollars last year, and even twenty-four billion in the first six months of this year. I mean, it is stunning numbers. Um, will um, they get taken up by, you know, big ag? I don't know. <laughs> but I do know um, that I ran into enough aggressive, um, competitive, um, you know, entrepreneurs who are not looking to get bought out. They are on a mission. Um, and I guess I was surprised about um, their willingness uh, what inspired them um, tended to be the very things that you talked about, sustainability and equity. Um, you know, one Uma Valente, for instance, he was a, um, came to the United States, you know, on a Mayo Clinic, um, you know, residency and realized that what he was doing is nurturing stem cells to, you know, um, make up for the damaged heart tissues that came from heart attacks. And he thought, well, if I can do that, I can, you know, make stem cells into muscle tissues, which is basically um, what meat is. And, and he said a great thing. He said, you know, I can continue to, um, you know, be a medical doctor and I can probably save a thousand lives over the next 30 years and I'll be proud of myself for doing it. But if I'm able to change the way food is developed, I'm going to save millions of humans and obviously hundreds of millions of animals in the process. But that kind of attitude of thinking about, let's use this new confluence of technologies in a way that brings sustainability and equity. That seemed to be just sort of a, a, a given from um, the entrepreneurs that I ran across. Richard Munson, I would love to get your take on this final question, uh, which is, what do you think the food system will look like in the year 2050? <laughs> the obvious answer is I don't know, mm -hmm. um, in part because that's that's the glory of innovation. Um, I mean, we could be, um, you know, making meals through, um, 
you know, the, like the replicator from Star Trek mm-hmm. um, that's able through, um, you know, to, you know, you know, use a few ingredients and through 3D printing, make our meals for us. In fact, that's happening at Michelin star restaurants and KFC and other places. I mean, so it's, it's becoming a reality. Will people substitute this microwave, you know, 3d printer into their kitchen? There's certainly a fair number of people that are spending a whole lot of money trying to make that real. Um, So I think uh, that's a different way of thinking about how we, you know, cook our meals, but also, you know, just the way that, you know, we can rethink how we are making our food. It could be in bioreactors. It could be, you know, using genetic, um, you know, um, editing. So the opportunities, I think, for change, um, as you note, you know, it's wonderful to go into a supermarket and see this plethora of, you know, options for us. I think what these technologies are going to do is provide even more options um, and more tasty options that will allow us to eat nutritiously, get away from the hunger that exists far too much in this country and the world, uh, and do it sustainably and equity. Yeah, it would be great if the technology that we rely upon to get us uh, food was not just being used to produce cheap, processed food that makes us unhealthy and doesn't even feed the world. Instead, was being used to nourish us and um, you know, making our food system more sustainable and equitable. So, I mean, I do think there's a lot of fascinating stuff in this book. Uh, once again, my guest is Richard Munson. His book is Tech to Table, 25 Innovators Reimagining Food. Highly recommended. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate your time today. I appreciate your invitation. Thanks very much. Take care. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.